it. Well, Donnie Finger, I wasn't like you and your wife want to go out to eat because I told you I'll take you out. You got a deal, buddy. That was great. Now you know why. I, that's a great song, boy. I preached many revivals over the years and preached in many churches where that song was sang right before I got up to preach. And boy, ain't nothing gets me motivated more than that song. I'll tell you, that's a great song. It speaks to everybody. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, I, uh, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians is just, I think, it's an amazing chapter. And uh, we've learned so much about how the devil blinds us from the gospel. And then we learned that there's two different aspects to the gospel. Uh, we learned that there's a gospel that, uh, the aspect of the gospel that you receive the day you get saved. That's what Dottie was just singing about. And then after we get saved, God intends us to do something with that gospel, so we, we fulfill the gospel. And the gospel, of course, is the good news that Jesus died according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the job of us as Christians. That's why God saved you. And I think today that you're going to see some things that carry it on a little bit farther. Last week we, we saw this blinding process, how the devil blinds us uh, from the inside, from probably one of the greatest single uh, aspects of the Word of God. And that is in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower. And I broke it down and I showed you how that there's four case studies that we looked at. If you're contemplating in your mind and uh, uh, wanting to be part of the counseling ministry as we kind of kick it off here this next year, these are the things that you have to learn. These are the case studies that you have to get down. And today we'll look at yet another principle found in this amazing book on ministry that within this amazing chapter on the personal application of the ministry, how you and I are to do it. You know, in preaching the Bible and listening to preaching of the Bible, there, there are some sermons that when you hear them or when you preach them, they're very direct. I don't know if you've ever analyzed the different ways that messages come across or different reactions to it, but in preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible, uh, there are some sermons that are very direct, absolutely to the point and require an immediate response. And that would be messages on salvation. If you would preach to God's people about sin in their lives, and I can think of a, a thousand messages that I preached over the over the forty some years that require a direct response. You know, there's a sermon I preach out of Joshua called uh, uh, "The Sin in the Camp," and it's a message about Achan. And Achan was uh, back with the nation of Israel, and they were fighting uh, the great battles back there in Joshua, and God gave them some specific instructions. And there were some things that they were not to do, and God told them that this first battle, everything that they won, all the spoils belonged to the Lord. But the Bible goes on, and he talks about how that uh, Achan... He saw a goodly Babylonian garment, and he saw uh, some wedges of gold, and he took those, and he disobeyed God, and he, he, the Bible says that he, he took them back to his tent, dug a little hole, and put them in there and covered them up, and then went out like there was nothing going on. And the Bible says that when you read that story, that after that happened, Israel could not stand before their enemies. You're going to find that a number of events took place in Israel's world that uh, uh, really brought about disaster. And nobody could figure out. Uh, Moses began to lose faith. Uh, people began to get killed. 
And nobody could figure out, and finally God brought it to light that Achan had, had sin in the camp. Now, I, I preached that message a thousand times, and I use that as an example. And the title of that is Sin in the Camp. And it's a picture of when you and I have sin in our lives and don't confess it, or we try to hide it, that it's not your own sin. When we look at that story, we find that, we find that the congregation of Israel was affected. We find that the leader, Moses, was affected. A little bit later on, we find that the man himself, Achan, was affected. And it goes to show you that, that your sin's not your own. Now, you see, that's a message, if you'd preach it, that demands immediate response, you see. People hear that, and you know where you're at. You know what you've got to do. So there's sermons like that, you see, sermons that when a guy preaches them, boy, he hits your white tween the eyeballs, and you know exactly that you have to do something. And you may say, well, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, didn't, didn't respond, so uh, it didn't affect me. No, you did respond by not responding, you see. I mean, you're either going to choose to do right or choose to do wrong. Some sermons, when you hear them, it, they demand that. Right there in your seat, you make a conscious choice. Yes, I'm going to do it, Lord, or no, I'm not going to do it. Some sermons are that way, you see. And there's other sermons that, uh, uh, there are sermons that are preaching that, that they have to sit with you for a while. You have to process it. Uh, you have to let it do its extended work. I, not always when you hear preaching does it always have an immediate effect. Sometimes, but some sermons don't. Sometimes you and I will get more out of a sermon thinking about it through the rest of the week than you actually do by just hearing it when it's preached. Now, that's by design. That's the way God does it. And I tell you all that because today's message uh, out of this next set of verses here is a message just like that. There's a great verse that illustrates that. I don't know if you've ever saw it in the Bible. It's one of my favorite verses that I have marked in my Bible, and it, it's, in the, it's in the book of Luke, in the Gospels. And it deals with the story of Mary when she was told that she was going to bring forth the Messiah to the nation of Israel. You know, that, that was a pretty overwhelming thing to drop on her that day. And I, I, I put myself in her place so many times when, when God has shown me something in the Word of God, or God has done some amazing thing in my life. And it's almost too much to comprehend. I, I can't even imagine uh, Mary, just some little gal out there who the angel of the Lord shows up and says, oh, by the way, you're going to bring forth the Messiah to the nation of Israel. Oh, and he's not just going to be the Messiah to Israel. He's going to be the Savior of the whole world. What a, what a thing to tell her. And yet the Bible says, and how many times I've found myself here, the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, that when Mary heard all of that, when God gave her all of that, when he, he, he laid out to her everything that he was going to do, the Bible says, but uh, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. How many times I've been that in my own place, in my own life. How many times when I've come across some great truth that God has revealed or God has done some great thing that I just have to take it. And I, I say it to myself so many times that I'll, uh, under my breath and to myself, or if I'm alone, I'll say it out loud. I'll just simply say it. And Mary pondered all these things uh, in her heart. This message will be like that today. You'll not get all of this today. Frankly, some of you will never get any of it. But some of you, some of you like Mary, will, will take this and let God simmer it 
on the back burner of your heart. Some of you this week will take what is said today, and though you won't be able to grasp it all at this particular moment in time, God will just kind of simmer it for a while, and like Mary, uh, you'll, you'll ponder it in your heart. You'll kind of put it on the back burner of your heart and just let God make that thing uh, throughout this week. Many of God's people just put it on the back burner. The problem is your pilot light's out. You've got no light of God to do anything with it. And you'll relegate this message, just like you do so many of them, uh, in, in your stack of files of things that you've heard, but it really doesn't change anything in your life. You know, I, I, in our very first lesson, you'll remember, as we began to look at 2 Corinthians, and I told you that this aspect of this book really deals with teaching us ministry. And the very first lesson I showed you that when we started this book, that how the book defines ministry around suffering. How that you and I go through things in life, you and I experience things in life, you and I will, through the happenstance of life, or in many cases through the stupid things that we do in life, or in some cases through the stand that we take for the Lord, you're going to suffer. And the Bible says that you take that, God takes that suffering, and as you grow through it, and as you learn from it, then God takes that and he helps you help somebody else that's going through it. I showed you, if you remember, all the negative words of this book uh, that he uses to really lay out the, the downside of ministry as suffering. He talked about tribulation and affliction and anguish and being grieved. He talks about being troubled and, how to be, and people who are distressed and perplexed. He talks about when we feel forsaken and cast down and persecuted. He talks about how that when we're beaten or stoned or shipwrecked or in bondage. He talks about being smitten, being in perils and weariness and painfulness and infirmities and strifes and rods and labors and burdens and wrath and all of the things that are the negative things in life. And yet, it's these very negative things. These very things that the world looks at and thinks it's terrible. And very frankly, most Christians want to stay as far from as they can. But it's these terrible negative things that are what made Paul's ministry. And I tell you today that the understanding ministry is understanding the concept of suffering. The Christian life should be a life of ministry. I say it every week. And that ministry uh, of life or giving life to others and dealing with people is you going through your own sufferings, your own issues, your own problems, that you may better help others go through theirs. And yet, as in ministry, as in anything, as in anything in life, there's always a price tag to pay. No matter what you can do, there's two concepts of life that, uh, that you better just learn in general. And they are, for me, they're the two fundamental basic concepts of life. And the quicker you understand these, no matter whether you're saved or you're lost, it doesn't really matter these two, the quicker you understand these, the better off you'll be because this is what life is. And it's real simple. People talk about the complexity of life. No, complexity is really, life is really not complex. We make it complex because we don't understand the fundamental principles by which life works. And there's just two. There's two. The first thing, the first basic principle is that there's a price tag of everything that we do or try to accomplish on planet Earth. I don't care what it is. Whatever you decide to do with life, there's going to be a price that comes along with it. If you want to do something for God, there's going to be a price tag that comes with that. If you're going to want to live your life for yourself and do your own thing, you know what? There's a price tag that comes with that. 
And that's one of the greatest things that people never learn. That's what makes life complex. You live your life the way you want it. You do what you want to do. And suddenly when your life is in a catastrophe, you're actually scratching your head and saying, why? The answer is simple. There's a price tag to everything we do. The second great concept is, (laughs) it goes right along with that. And that is simply this. Everything in life, everything in life that you do is a trade-off. Everything in life you do, you'll trade this for that. If you're here this morning and you love the Lord Jesus and you're doing the work of God in your life to the best of your ability and you're one of the people uh, in this church that really dedicates yourself to, uh, you're far from perfect, but in your mind and in your heart, you're going to give your life to God. You know what? When you chose that, you traded something for that. I had a young lady years and years ago, I was preaching in a camp. In fact, it reminded me when Donnie was singing that song because they sang that song that night. And I heard a gal get up and give a testimony right after the song and I was going to preach afterwards. And she was a beautiful gal. And she was an absolutely beautiful gal. And she was just absolutely uh, uh, perfection. And she get up and gave a great testimony and then she sang a song. And afterwards, I preached. And at the end, uh, you know, I went up to her and, and I, was, I, I thanked her for her song and for her testimony. And as I was standing there, another girl came up and, and I'll never forget this. The girl said, you know what? She said, I really was moved by your testimony tonight. And she said, you know what? She said, I would give the world to have a testimony like that. And that little girl looked back at her and said, without missing a beat, she said, you know what? That's exactly what I gave up to get it. Life's a choice. Life's a trade-off. She traded the world for her relationship with God. But I can turn that around. A lot of God's people trade God and all he has for the things of the world. Life's a trade-off. There isn't anything you do. You don't trade this for that. Those two fundamental issues of life are the two of the greatest principles that you ever, they answer almost everything in our world of why things are the way they are. We make our own choices, and in making our own choices, there's always a price tag that we have to make and pay with that choice, and whenever we choose, by our own choosing, we trade something for it. I've seen young ladies trade their millennial inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ because of the guy that she married. I've seen guys trade their millennial inheritance and throw away a life of ministry because of the woman they married. The Bible sets down a set of clear principles. They're very clear. We look at them, we read them, we decide to do something else. And when that little gal or that guy would come to me and she's, I don't know what happened, Bob. I wanted to do God. I don't know how I got messed up with this gal. I don't know how I got messed up with this guy. I don't know what happened. My answer is real simple. It's, it's not hard to figure out. Sweetheart, you traded this for this. Pal, you traded this for this. Everything in life is a trade-off. Everything. No matter what you do, you're going to trade something for it. You need to trade up, not down. You need to make sure that what you trade for brings a profit for the Lord, not for yourself. I've seen young men and young ladies. I see it all the time. I see young men and young ladies start to come and to go to church. I've seen it in all my years of ministry. 
And they'll get into a situation where uh, God begins to do something in their life. They'll begin to get into their situation where God begins to really work in their life. And then, you know, they'll get to the point where they'll, 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 they'll see people in the church or make friends with this people and that. And they'll see people that, that have no concept of ministry, have nothing they want to do with ministry. They'll see people that are involved in ministry. And instinctively, they'll, they'll always go to the crowd that does nothing. And then down the line someplace at the judgment seat of Christ, when they've lost everything and their life's in a sham and their life's in a mess, they're going to actually sit there and look at God and say, what happened? And God's going to say, you know what happened? You traded this for this. You knew who these people were. You knew what these people were. You knew what the ministry was. The ministry isn't. You chose that and you traded it. You traded it. That's just the way that it works. This is why most Christians will never do the ministry. They simply won't pay the price for it. They're like the generation of kids that we have today. When I'm about to say, let me preface it by saying this. I appreciate the young teenagers that we have in this church that really love God. I appreciate the young singles that we have that really love God. You married folks, you're another bracket. I'm not focused on that. Because in a generation that we live in today, you find most young men and young ladies don't have a clue, don't care, could care less about anything. They have no values in their life. They have no accountability in their life. They have no responsibility in their life. They're absolutely broken down in every aspect of their life. They grew up thinking that the life owes them a living. Their no responsibility has led to no accountability. They have no values in their life. They don't know, care about right from wrong. I mean, we're living in a society where a man, what? Uh, Easter Sunday, I think it was. Maybe I got the time wrong. But right here in Raytown, out 6, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, was out for a jog. Some two punk kid drove by or three kids or whatever and just decided to shoot him. Now, what's wrong with a society like that? What's wrong with a group of kids that, when I was a kid growing up, we had gangs, but the key, chief gang guy was the guy that won all the marbles when we shot marbles. <laughs> now the chief gang is the guy who doesn't shoot marbles, he just shoots people. This is the generation of kids that don't care. This is a generation of kids that, that don't care, don't care about anything. And I appreciate the young men and the young ladies here that are single that do care. That you have some real character. I appreciate that. I appreciate you teenagers down there at Restart. I watch you down there working out there in that hot heat and doing a job, man, when there's other teenagers that wouldn't even walk across the street. And yet you're faithful every week. But I say that because most of the generation today are not like that. And most of God's people are like the generation of kids who just don't know the meaning of anything that has any value to it. God's people today want the easy route. They want everything that God has for them, but they want it on their terms, on a silver platter, and then somebody to spoon feed it to them. You like this church because you come on Thursday night and you get lots of good stuff out of the Bible. You come on Sunday morning and you get lots of good stuff out of the Word of God. 
But the bottom line is, you get so much good stuff, you get, you get to the point where you get like most kids, you get spoiled, and then you don't really do anything when there's around this world, and I know you don't understand this, but there's around this world, there's men and women that would die to have what you have on Sunday morning and Thursday night. And I know you have no clue of understanding that because of where you're at based on the choices that you've made. Bible says you have to be a workman. The Bible says you have to be a wise master builder. God's people want it easy today. Uh, they, they want everything that God has, but they, as I said, they want it in their terms. And, they, and the moment it gets a little warm for them or a little, little hot for them, we saw it in case study number two last week. The ones that have no root, they spring up, they're happy about it, but when the sun gets hot, the Bible says they do it for a while and then they're gone. They have no idea of God's price tag of what he paid for them. Like that little girl that said, oh, I'd like to have their testimony. I'd give anything in the world to have a testimony like yours. And she looked right back and she said, you know what? That's exactly what it cost me. The choices we make in life. The choices we make in life. The true riches versus the worldly riches. If there's one word today, in my mind anyhow, that defines the whole society that we live in, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's one word, and it's the word dysfunctional. Oh, we have a dysfunctional government. We have a government for the last three years cannot even pass a budget. We have a government for the last three or four years can't get anything done. We have a government, and then, but at the same time, we have marriages that are dysfunctional. Oh, my goodness. Marriages that are absolutely dysfunctional. We have families that are dysfunctional. We have relationships that are dysfunctional. And then we wonder why we have kids who are dysfunctional. And yet that same word defines modern Bible Christianity for the most part. I have never seen in all the years of being in the ministry a more dysfunctional church and Christianity than I see today, not fully in any way, shape, or form fulfilling the fundamentals of the gospel. You know, last Thursday night, somebody asked a question uh, out of the fact that about being a missionary and how everybody wants to talk about foreign mission, but aren't we missionaries? And I took the time to lay that out, not do it again this morning, but just make the point. Yes, we are missionary. If you're saved this morning, you are a missionary. Your mission field is right here where God puts you. But last week, we learned that most people won't do it. We looked at it from the inside, and I gave you four case studies why you're going to spend enormous amounts of time. I'm going to spend all of my life preaching my heart out, going to the ends, doing everything I know how to do, and yet God's people are not going to fulfill what God wants them to do. It's just the way that it is. Yet in the midst of the ministry, if you ever decide to do it, and you decide to suffer for God by your choosing, you'll always have uh, to have the victory. And we talked about that. When the world and the people's lives are crashing in because they won't do what's right, you stay on top of your game and you stay all the way to the end. We talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. There never should be a time in your life and my life as a child of God that we do not have the victory. And I'm going to show you today why that is. And I say again, you'll not get this today. This won't sink in today. This is something like Mary that you want to ponder in your heart. You know, dealing with people, I was reading this week 
I go back every once in a while and try to take on a weekly basis and read some Dear Saints biography just to keep up on things so I don't lose touch with it. I was, I was reading the story of Mary Slessor. Mary Slessor was a woman. Great study for some of you young ladies. I think we maybe don't have it now, but we've had her book back here in the bookstore. Mary Slessor was a missionary to the lepers in India. And I got reading of that, and I thought to myself, you know what? What she did is a lot like what we do in ministry. Because when you stop to look at dealing with people in the ministry, it's a lot like working in a leper colony. I mean, leprosy in the Bible is a type of sin. And it, 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 it eats away at your flesh, just like sin does. In fact, when you go back in the book of Leviticus and you find where leprosy is really detailed out, you know that there was three kinds of leprosy, and I see this all the time in God's people. There was a leprosy of the flesh. And then there was a leprosy that got in your clothes. And then there was a leprosy that got in your house. And boy, I looked back in the Old Testament and see that, and I thought to myself, boy, tell me the Bible's not the Word of God. Tell me the mind behind that book doesn't go way beyond where our mind goes, because that's exactly what happens. When you start to get sin in your flesh, and I've seen it happen in God's people's lives. You start hanging with the wrong crowd. You start doing the wrong things. You start listening to people who don't care about the Word of God or care about the ministry, and you're smart enough already to know who they are or what they should or should not do, and you start to let that leprosy get in your flesh. It eats at you. You know, the next thing it does, it gets in your clothes. You know the clothes you got on today say who you really are? Some of you are just plain drab because you're just a normal guy. Some of you, got, some of you, some of you, you just, you don't, you don't dress up, you don't dress down. You're just normal and you look normal by the way you dress. You can always tell when a woman is out fishing for somebody by the way she dresses. It gives it away and it's not like we don't know. It's like, look at me. I'm painted up like Possumberry folks time, and, and, and I'm the only one that knows. Now, the whole world knows. The whole world knows. You look like a barn with a fresh coat of paint on it, man. You drive down the road, you say, hey, Herb, who painted the barn? The things we wear say who we are. Personally, this is no offense to anybody that's got one on. And I see out here, I see you. You got A&E, you got Casey, you got 413, you got... Run fast, eat slow. That's a good one. I like that. You got the Chiefs on it. You got Superman on yours. I like that. You got back here, you got whoever she is on there. I like that. You got, I can only see HD. CHD. Okay, I like that one. You know, I'm not, I'm not that, you, you, got a, you got an American flag on yours. When you walked in, I didn't know where to hug your salute you. <clears throat> Now, this is just me. I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a t- T-shirt type of guy that has things on them. I don't like to buy clothes from American Eagle. Uh, no offense. I love that shirt. You know, I mean, I love KC. I would, you know, but not very often do I do that. I would wear a Superman shirt, but I'd be in fights all day long. So I don't do that. <laughs> I'm just a kind of a plain guy. But my point is, you know, we, when that leprosy gets in your clothes, you start doing things differently than you did before. And then it gets in your house. And when it gets in your house, then it affects your family. It affects your kids. Your sin's not your own. I've seen couples, I've seen kids, I've seen uh, parents, I've seen, where, where, where the, uh, I call them black holes. 
Because anybody that gets around them that are right with God gets sucked into what's wrong. Because leprosy is like a disease. And we are like leper. We like people who work in a leper colony. You're there to help the people, but you have to be careful that you don't contact the disease yourself. And you have to take some safeguard to that. You can't ever lose your balance in ministry. We know that balance by now is perception, or per, a perspective, purpose, and passion. We know that. You always got to keep looking and understanding who you are and what you're doing. The ability to work with people in the horrendous situations, lives being destroyed. I mean, one of the hardest things in dealing with people uh, is watching the kids get crushed, the kids get destroyed. I sit there and watch the family not do what's right or a husband not do what's right or a wife not do what's right or both of them not do what's right. And I've seen those little kids who were innocent that wanted to come to church, that wanted to learn. And I know as well as I'm standing here and many other people feel the same pain. I know as well as I'm standing here, those kids are never going to have a chance. It's going to get crushed. The devil's going to make sure I like to do something. I like to say something. I like to scream something. But you know what? They're not my kids. There's times you've got to learn to turn it over to the Lord. And that's when you look into your own congregation. And you know what you see? You see some of you young men and some of you young ladies out there that came out of tremendous, horrendous experiences yourself and your family. And you bolster me. You give me courage. You give me a hope that, that God can do that in spite of horrendous situations. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like it. I think parents were given to a kid to raise them up in the Word of God, and that is the surest thing that kid would get saved. And yet parents are oblivious to that in many cases. You see defeat upon defeat in some people's lives. But you and me have to hold the line. You and me have to be on top of our game. You and me can't have a bad day. You and me can't take a chance on getting out of the Word of God. I got to be careful who I hang out with. I got to be careful that I'm not going to associate with people. They're going to pull me off my game. And it's very subtle. But you got to be smarter than the problem. Now, I want to read today where we really left off last week. And it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, here's what it says, but we have this treasure, and we read this verse last week, this is where we stopped, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now here it comes, oh, I love this. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which alive are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Oh, dear Father, help us today to see this. Lord, there's good people here today who, who want to do what want, that you want them to do. I believe that. This church, it only goes, it only moves, it only accomplishes what uh, you have for us to do as a body, as a church, by the men and women who are the boots on the ground, who make it happen because uh, of what you've done in their life. 
And as the old song said, all of us sat five rows back some point in time. All of us sat there and listened to the Word of God be preached, and God came down and talked to us. When the old choir sang, Just as I am, we knew it was talking about us, and we received the gospel. But Lord, it ain't enough just to receive the gospel. We need to take it after we receive it and carry it to somebody else and fulfill the very reason that you saved us. Help us today. Help this sermon to just simmer in so many of God's people's lives. Help them to just think about it all week, the rest of this day, the rest of the month. May God you enact and bring up little lights here and there flickering in their hearts down throughout this next week of things that they need to see. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it. Amen. Now verse 7 says, we now understand this treasure in earthen vessels is our bodies. And I say it again, when you receive the gospel, God gave you the light of the gospel. And now you're to fulfill that gospel. Not fulfilling it by making it any better, but fulfilling it by taking it to somebody else. You're going to see the reason God saved you this morning. God chose us to be his vessels of ministry. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but you still find over in the ruins over in Europe, in the Roman, where the Roman Empire was, and she was all through Europe there for about 1,500 years. You'll actually find them digging up these little lamps and these little vessels made of clay. And they were for one reason, they held oil. And that's what he's talking about here. Your body and my body is made of clay, but inside it is the oil, and the oil is the type of the Holy Spirit of God. Yet, God wants to use you and use me. Yet, in spite of all this, the Bible tells us how weak as humans we really are. Clay vessels are very fragile. If there's one thing the Bible does show very clearly, and there's no problem with seeing this at all, in every case it shows us the frailty of man. Psalms 8 is a favorite passage of mine. And it's something that always, when I read it, it, it's one of those things that I ponder. I just read to you that we are the treasure in earthen vessels, and then Psalms 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You know, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible to ponder. When you look at all the heavens that God created, when you go out and look at the moon and the sun during the day, and you see all of the things at night and all of those stars that God made, the work of his hands, the work of his fingers, and then you stop and consider and ponder. God being mindful of you and me. Why? With all that he could create, with all the awesome power that he had, why did God, in all of his infinite wisdom, ponder for a moment and be mindful of you and me who are so frail in everything that we try to do. Who not only are frail, but <laughs> mess our lives up every day. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that he... In spite of that, God sent his son for you and for me. Verse 5, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, all the beasts of the field, 
the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. You know, God shows you and me. God was mindful of man. Yet the Bible says in Psalms 37, verse 2, that we're like the grass that grows and then gets cut down when we die. Psalm 78 says that we're just flesh, like a wind that passes away and cometh not again. James chapter 4, verse 14 says that our life is like a vapor that appeared for a little while and then fadeth away. And yet, in spite of what God said, you and I know this is true. All of our days in life is a veil of tears. One disappointment after another. We're under a curse, if you know anything about the Bible at all, on this old planet as a fallen creation. Why God would choose us as his vessels to carry the light of God's word. Why God would be mindful of man and then visit man and then set the precedent that God was going to put the treasure, <laughs> the, tre <laughs> the treasure of God in this earthen vessel. Oh, my. That's something to ponder, isn't it? Yet the reason is very clear when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It's both very simple and yet verse profound. He simply says that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, God wants the honor and glory out of everything on this planet and everything that's done. So what God decided to do was take the most weakest, frailest vessels there were, put his glory into it, energize them with the Holy Spirit of God, and then let that frail, weak vessel that is a tendency to break and be busted and to make every situation in life go south, let them do and carry the gospel. You know why? Because at the end of the day, that God would get the honor and glory out of it. Hey, there's one thing we can all say, if you do anything for God, if I do anything for God, there's one thing we can all say. The Bible says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world <coughs> and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. God wants the honor and glory. Nobody can ever say, if you're honest, look at what I did for God. But rather we have to say, look what God did through me. Look what God did in spite of me. You know, as Baptists, we're not much on miracles. And that's a shame. Part of that is because of the charismatics, they miracle us to death. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, if you know your Bible, there's, there's, there, it's an incredible study. There's four miracles to the child of God. And the thing that always... <clears throat> you talk about human nature. You talk about our sinful ways. These four miracles are the only true four miracles that we have in our lives as Christians that are bonafidely given to us, and they're the four that nobody wants. I guarantee you, if you found out you had cancer this week, if you found out that your kid was sick, if you found out that you had some repairable disease, or you found out or you were in some car wreck and your chances to walk were next to nil ever again, and you lost your eyesight, and the doctor says you got about a one chance in 10,000, you know what you do? You would be screaming, crying for God to give you a miracle. But you don't want these miracles. Truth of the matter is, if you got these down, you probably wouldn't have to worry about the one we're always crying about. 
The first miracle that applies to you and me is the miracle of God's Son. The very fact that God was mindful of man. The very fact that the God, brought, God brought His Son down to us. That's a miracle. God was manifested in the flesh. The Bible says He was born of a virgin. That's a miracle. The miracle of God's Son. Second miracle is the miracle of the Word of God. You got a book. It was written by God, given to you. Why? You know what? If I've often, if if somebody in this church won a lottery and won a hundred million dollar in the lottery, you know, and uh, you're their friend, and they said to you, uh, because you're my friend, look, I got a hundred million dollars, man, I'll never spend it all. Here's a check for one million dollars. Would you wait till Friday to cash it? I'm just asking now. Would you wait till Friday to cash it? Would you take the check home and throw it up on your dresser? On that particular check, would you have to say to your wife, Honey, I think I left that in my pants. Did you wash it? (laughs) Would you really? Would you just wad it up with all the other papers in the glove box of your car? No. If somebody wrote you a check for a million dollars, you would you would hire a Brinks truck to take you home from this place. (laughs) You would have an armed guard around you till the bank opened, and you would be there at 9.01, waiting to get into that bank to get your money. And yet God wrote you a book that's worth so many millions and billions and trillions of times that, and we care nothing about it. You know why? Because it, it, it would be a miracle for you to win the lottery. But God gave you the miracle of the Word of God right in your hand today, and you don't even care about it. Yet I hear people all the time, you know, if I won the lottery, yeah, well, you won the lottery when God gave you the miracle of the Word of God. You're just too stupid to see it. Then the third miracle is the miracle of the new birth. All the liberals say out there, there ain't no hell. How could a righteous, holy God take a sin and send him to hell? I just got the opposite. How could a holy, righteous God take somebody like me to heaven? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And the fourth one is the one we're talking about today. The miracle of God using me and you. Oh, he don't need us. Yeah. I know my own life is try as I, I do to do what's right, and some of you don't care to do what's right at all, and I'm not saying put myself above you any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying I know what a rotten guy I am and how I must be a pain in the backside of God sometimes, or God even has a backside. But it, I, I look at myself and I wonder how God puts up with me. Why would God ever want to use me? In my mind, the way I look at it, God has a lot more issues to deal with me than he gets out of me. But he does. And the reason why he does that nobody can ever say, look at what I did. If you're really honest, you realize that God did it that way, that no flesh could glory in his presence. The treasure in these earthen vessels is the light of God's word in us, that when we, in our frail, weak clay bodies, with all of its trials and tribulations and all of its sufferings, the miracle that God would use it. Use our lives if we let him. 
Now, I want to focus on verses 8, 9, and 10, 11, and 12 here for the rest of our time. And I want to show you some great lessons on suffering. I don't expect this to impact you today. I expect you to ponder it. But these are tremendous verses, and they show us the difference between our suffering and the world's suffering. You know, there's two kinds of people here today. We're all going to suffer. We're under a curse on this planet. Everybody's going to suffer. But there's two kinds of people in this room. You're either going to suffer for your own stupidity or you're going to suffer for God. But you are going to suffer. There'll never be anybody to go through life and say, I never suffered. You're all going to lose something in life. Something's going to happen. You may get away with it for a while. You may think you're going to beat the odds, but you won't. You won't. You won't at all. And there's two kinds of people here today. Those that are suffering because of the sake of this old world and those that are suffering because of your walk with God. And you know the great thing about it is you get to choose which one you want to be. I think of the story of Moses. Moses is such a great example of where you and I are at in our struggle. Here's somebody that... He, he struggled all of his life and everything that he did. From the very time he first met God, he struggled. <clears throat> and you know the story of Moses. <clears throat> he was raised, <clears throat> he was raised uh, in, in Pharaoh's court. He had the greatest education. He had the greatest family. He had the greatest name. He had everything going for him. That guy wanted for nothing. You talk about a guy who had the world by the tail. He had everything he wanted. And we know that Egypt's a type of the world. He was in the upper echelon. Of, he couldn't get any higher. Yet the Bible says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Look at this, verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. There's your word. That's what you got to do in life. He endured. He he endured as seeing him who's invisible. Now, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at that. We're all going to suffer in this wife. No one is going to escape it. The only thing you have to decide is who you're going to suffer for, <laughs> your own stupidity or the God that died for you. You know, there's two kind of fools in the Bible. The first kind of fool is a, an unsaved man. The second kind of fool, as the Bible says, is the fool for Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10. We're all fools. I just choose to be a fool for him, not for this world. What Paul does or says in verse 8, 9, and 10 is to show us the difference in these two types of suffering and really lets us see how God takes the suffering for him when he, and uses it then for others. It's incredible. He says in verse 8, four great comparisons here. Four great comparisons you want to see. When you get working with people down the line someplace, you're going to use stuff like this. They're going to have issues in their life, like many of you have issues in their life, and you're going to teach this to them much like I'm teaching it to you, except you'll probably be one-on-one -on -one with them. And the first thing he says here is we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. What a great contrast between the child of God suffering for Christ's sake and the person who's suffering for the world's sake. Trouble on every side, yet not distress. 
You know, Paul certainly was. His writings are filled with the troubles he experienced for the gospel's sake. You know, uh, it says, uh, troubled on every side. You know this morning that if a child of God, you're caught in a great vacuum of a great spiritual battle that's going on all around you. And he says, troubled on every side. You know why? Because you're going to have trouble as a Christian. You know why you're going to have trouble on every side? Because you're surrounded in this world. That's why. You're surrounded. You will have trouble on every side. You'll have trouble everywhere you look. You know why? Because the world's against you. This is why some of God's people won't break from the world. They don't want the trouble on every side. They want to try to make friends with the world. And there's no making friends with the world. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You're either in or you're out. But that's what a lot of God's people try to do. You can't do that. And you're surrounded. The trouble on every side. You are surrounded. It's all around you. I I think of, of... Right after Christmas, or right around Christmas, we lost a great American hero. Dick Winters passed away. Right away, right a little before Christmas, I think it was. And Dick Winters, if most people uh, don't know who he came to fame, he was the, he was the commander of, of Easy Company, 506th in the, in the story Band of Brothers. And he was a great leader. He was a great man, saved man, loved the Lord. And I'll never forget one time uh, when he was... Uh, when he was in Bastogne and they pulled the 101st as they did the 82nd and a lot of other guys to plug the hole when the Germans broke through in the Ardennes and, and uh, Bastogne was completely surrounded. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I, I love guys like this. I, you know, I, I wish I could have met him. I, I, I wish he could have been in our church. I wish I'd have had a chance to teach him the Bible because he had what I looked for. And they're surrounded in Bastogne. And, you know, you had the 28th Division, which was an infantry company, and they had a bunch of other, but the airborne guys, they, they were all an elite group. And, and they were surrounded completely. And, and one of the 28 guys, they were all running away from it, you know, and the 101st was going in the line. And one of, them, one of the captains or lieutenants come down and saw Dick Winters over there, who was a captain, and he comes over and he says, he says, you, you better get out of here. We're, we're, we're surrounded. Winters looks at him and says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. You know what? You're a Christian this morning. You're supposed to be surrounded. You're supposed to have trouble on every side. Christ had trouble on every side. You're to have trouble on every side. Make sure it's not trouble because of the stupid things you do. Make sure it's the trouble you get into for doing what God wants you to do. You're supposed to be surrounded. Trouble on every side is what it's supposed to be for you and for me. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 9 to 10, we looked at it a while back. He says, we had the sentence of death. He thought he was going to die. There was a time in his life when he didn't have trouble on every side. And you and I will have trouble in our suffering on every side, yet not distressed. Oh, there's the contrast. There's no distress in a child of God's life. He knows who he's working for. He knows what's happening. Now, the word today in our world is the link off of that word is the word stress. There should never be stress in a child of God's life. It's God's work. You're working for him. We just do our job. We simply be the vessels. God does all the issues. And in that, you learn to rest in the Lord. And you have trouble, but you're never distressed. 
Because you know who you're working for and to know your trouble you got is because you're doing it for him. You know when you have stress is when the trouble you got is because you did it yourself. The stress that brings in our life is simply the things that we do our way that blow up in our face. We don't know how to handle it. It's our trouble, so it's our distress. When it's God's trouble, there is no distress. You can actually walk out and say, ooh, that's a mess, God. Better do something about it. I got to go. Every time I get into trouble is when I start doing God's job. My job is to be the vessel. His job is to solve the problem. Every time I get stress in my life, it's when I quit doing my job and I start trying to do his. Let him deal with it. You work for him. You work for him. I have my job. God has his. I think back of Exodus chapter 17 in that great picture of prayer where Moses is a picture of you and me. And it's the battle of Rephidim. And Joshua is down there fighting Amalek. And Moses is up there and he's lifting up his hands. And the Bible says when, when, when his, as long as his hands are up, they're winning. When he starts to get tired and drop his hands, they start losing. That's a picture of your prayer life. But I want you to notice that it wasn't Moses down there fighting the fight. Moses was on the mountains praying without ceasing. It was Joshua, Jesus, who was doing the fighting. Our problem, my problem is we get in the fights we never should get in. He does your fighting. Your job is not to fight. Ephesians chapter 6, he gives you all the armor. Not one place in that passage does he tell you to fight. He tells you to stand. Stand. But you know what? Fighting's a lot easier than standing. It's tough when somebody comes up and gets in your face and talks about your mother or talks about your father and you know you want to take his teeth out, but you don't. There will be people who will try to provoke you in life to get you to do something, and the moment you do it, you're in trouble. The hardest thing to do is just to stand there and take it. And for God, I want to tell you something. The hardest thing to do is to stand there and take it. It takes courage, it takes guts, it takes perception, it takes purpose, and it takes passion. To be able to stand there and troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Not my problem. My problem, I'm just a vessel. My problem, I'm not just a vessel. Fill me up and I'll do whatever you want to do. All this trouble out here, that's your deal. You handle it. You see, when you stop doing your job and you start to get doing God's job, that's when you got stressed. Or you start doing it all yourself, your way, and then you wonder why your life's a disaster. You wonder why you got so much anxiety. You wonder why you got so much depression. You wonder why you got all these things that are going down in your life. I'll tell you why. It's because you have tried to do it your way and it ain't working. That's why. That's exactly why. God always pays for what he orders. You hear me say it all the time. He paid for you, and he ordered you and me to go out there and do a job. Let him deal with the problems. We're going to be troubled on every side. Oh, I got trouble. I got trouble. Hey, we're Christians. We're supposed to have trouble. We're supposed to be surrounded on every side. We still got the victory. God's people have such weak needs, lilies, little People today, little Twinkie Pies that just can't handle anything that's going. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to say anything negative to anybody. They just want to get along with everybody. Second one. 
I'm getting off that one. Second one. Oh, no, no. I just got some more things I want to say on this one. Perplexed, but not in despair. You know, there's times as a Christian that you don't know what God's doing. And it looks perplexing. The situation will look perplexing. The situation may even look confusing. But keep in mind the great principle, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God's not the author of confusion. It, it brings you back to what I said. You're not responsible for all the situations you find yourself in, but you're responsible how you deal with it. When I say that, I immediately think of 606 B.C. I think of Daniel. I think of Ezekiel. I think of Hosea. And I think of all them prophets that are the post-captivity guys, or captivity guys too. They were doing what's right in a nation that was not doing what's right. They were in a nation that was against everything that God said. They were trying to do what's right. God was going to come down and judge that nation. God did come down and judge that nation. And because those boys were doing the right thing. Do you know what? They went into captivity like everybody else. You know what the difference was? Everybody else was perplexed. Daniel was perplexed. Isaiah was perplexed. Ezekiel was perplexed. But none of them were in despair. I, I, I look at it as today in America. America is about to get whacked by God big time. Everything you see in this country is, is, is the signs of God, uh, God's judgment falling on this country because of what this country did with the Word of God. Hey, you know what? Here we are, Old Past Baptist Church. You know what? In spite of that, some of us are going to lose our job. In spite of that, some of us are going to lose our homes through no fault of whatever you did. Hey, you see, you look at that and you think to myself, oh, wow, what a terrible thing. Until you get the principle, this world is not my home. Amen. Until you realize that you're supposed to be surrounded, that God will always meet your needs. He'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. All of those things are supposed to separate you from what the world or Christian world really is. You're going to be perplexed. I'm perplexed sometime. But I've given you the principle. Never doubt in the darkness what God has given you in the light. Moses, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, the last thing it said, he endured. And there'll be times that you have to endure. The Bible says he endured as one who him, saw him that was invisible. That's your problem. Most of you can't see God when everything is going on, let alone when God's everything going bad. You have no enduring in your life. Perplexed, but not in despair. I think despair is a terrible word. I really do. It, it gives the indication of no hope. People in hell are in despair. You see, the world leaves you helpless. The world system, and when you suffer because of the world, it leaves you helpless. But with God, all things work together for good to them that love God that are called according to His purpose. I want to give you five rules that when you face a perplexing situation, you'll use these. When you get into a situation that's perplexing, the reason why you don't have any despair is because of these five things I'm going to give you right here. The first thing you want to do is when you find yourself in a perplexing situation that you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Don't make any decisions. The worst thing you can do when you don't know what to do is to do something. 
When you're in a perplexing situation, and I find myself in ministry with church and everything that we do uh, in people's lives, when I see a situation and I don't know what to do, you know what I do? I don't do anything. I'll tell you why in a moment. The second thing I do is examine myself. Maybe this perplexity was brought about because of my stupidity or something I didn't do right. The third thing I look at and I say to myself, stay with the principle that got you where you're at. In other words, when you can't see where you need to go and you're perplexed about what to do, just stay with what brought you where you're at. Go with what you do know. Stay in the light of the Word of God that you can clearly see. Realize that God didn't bring you this far to drop you off now. Rest in that and realize that if you can't see it, if it's perplexing, that's okay. Maybe God has put a roadblock in you so you won't do anything. But you see, we're such people, we gotta make, we gotta make a decision. We gotta do this. I gotta have this. I gotta go here. I gotta get this done. We, when, when God isn't clear, we just step over God and say, I'm gonna do it. And then wonder why it fails. When you get to that point and it's perplexing, don't do anything. Look inside yourself to make sure it's not you. <clears throat> but if that's okay, then stay with the principles that got you where you're at. And then always remember number four. It's God's job to make it clear, not your job. It's God's job to show you. And he'll do that in his timing when he's ready. You need to learn to wait on God. And then the fifth thing. Go to the book and you'll find the exact same issues that somebody else went through and you'll get light on it. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13, or, or I mentioned it, that uh, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's a great verse. And that's a great verse for when you're in a time of perplexing. Most people think that verse means that when you've got a decision to make, you go to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and then you take the pulling of it, and the one who told you the same thing the most is what you do. You roll the dice. You go get advice from everybody out there. I've had pastors saying, you know what? When you, you know, you go, when, in, a, in a council of many counselors, there's safety. So talk about with God's people. Find out what's going on. Let me tell you something. That's not what it's talking about. In the counselors you got are 66 books in your Bible, and there's over 200,000 cases of men and women who've been in the exact same situation that you're in. Gee, find out how they got out of it. In times of perplexing, you have something the world never has. The unchanging principles of the Word of God and a record of over 200,000 men and women who just like you went through the affliction for God and God brought them through. The Christian life is like a long, dark tunnel. Every hundred yards, there's a light bulb. We got to walk down that tunnel. We just love it when God turns all the lights on at one time. Life is never that way. He'll turn it on as you walk down that tunnel, one light bulb at a time. And sometimes you'll have to walk in the darkness for a while before he turns that light on. He just wants to see if you're willing to walk in the dark or you're going to stay. I'm not going anywhere until you turn the light on. (laughs) One of the greatest studies in the Bible, you've heard me talk about it many, many times, is the aspect of the Tower of David. Or a high tower. 
being able to be into the Word of God to the degree in a relationship with God that you can see over the obstacles and the circumstances and the issues of life. And you do that by examples and examples and principles that pull it all together. You know what? I know I'm the pastor, and I know that I solve a lot of your problems, and you come to me with your problems, and I know I'm training you to kill whether it be a problem. But at the end of the day, you know what? The only difference between me and you, really, the only difference between me and you, fundamentally, the only difference between me and you is my tower is just a little bit higher than yours. That's all. It's like the difference of hunting a deer standing on the ground and you can't see squat unless it runs you over or attacks you or comes up and says, here, I'm a deer, shoot me. You ain't going to get one. You get into a deer stand that you're up off the ground 20 or 30 feet, you got a whole nother dimension to look at. you got three dimensions. You can see everywhere. You can see above this. When you hear now something, you can see what it is. You don't have to try to peek through the bushes. Now you're above it. You can look over and you can see it. That's what the Word of God does for you. And that's why there'll be times you'll be perplexed. There's times that I'm perplexed. But I want to tell you something. There's never be a time when I'm in despair. Because I know that book, and I know that God's going to take care of me, and I know that there's a certain amount of suffering that goes along with it. It just comes with the territory. And when you're willing to pay it, when you're willing to get that, pay that price, God's going to carry you through. It's just that simple. Then the third one. Persecuted but not forsaken. Now, Paul really is the poster child for this because he was persecuted. I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was snake bit. He was beat with rods. There was all kinds of assassination plots against him. He was lied about. He was made fun of. Uh, they hated him with a passion. Uh, they beat him up and left him for dead. They pulled threw him in jail and finally cut his head off. I mean, uh, pretty exciting life, wouldn't you say? He understands all of these things. And he realizes that God uses these own experiences to make this great point that he gives to this church in the next few verses. But he also says that you and I will have to pay the price of being God's vessel. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Suffering is like... Suffering of this life is unescapable. I'm choosing to suffer for him and not for the world. Because with him, there's persecution. There'll always be persecution. But he'll never forsake you. He says, Hebrews 11, uh, 13, 5, The Lord will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That'll be everybody's three-by-five card in this room. You see, these are the comparisons. Old Mel Sabaka used to tell a story that I never forgot. It has carried me through. Because you're going to get persecuted. But the great principle is God will never forsake you. He'll always be there for you. And I heard Mel preach this story many, many times. And boy, it's a great story. And when I find myself in these kind of situations, I think back on things like that. And they really bring the word of God to light and carry me through. He told the story, I've heard him say it so many times, I can close my eyes and hear him, hear him saying it, and, 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 and just incredible. He told the story many, many times about a little boy that went, went to school. And every day he went to school, when he got out of school, uh, there was always a, a big bully out there that was just, uh, always just beat him up, take everything he had. He'd take his lunch money in the morning, he'd take whatever he had left, he'd dump his books, he'd make fun of him, he'd take everything he had. If the kid got something new and took it to school, the bully took it on the way out. And he was just 
he just persecuted his kids relentlessly. Well, one day the kid got out of school a little early. And he started to come around the thing there, and he thought, oh, I made it. And he got down to the end of the school and looked around back and just about ready to laugh and say, I'm going to get out of it today when that bully came around the corner. That little guy started to take off for home. He lived about four blocks away. He's headed off home. That bully took off after him. And he's running with all he's got, man, and that bully's much bigger than he is, and he's faster than he is, and that bully's gaining on him. He gets to the first intersection, looks back. He doesn't even stop. He looks back, and that bully is about 100 feet behind him. He's moving everything he's got, his little heart coming out of his mouth. He's running as hard as he can. He comes around the corner, and just a glance, a glance as he sees his house about two blocks away, and that bully is gaining on him. He's just pumping everything he's got. He gets to that point. He, he gets to his house. He opens the gate and slams the gate, comes around the side of the house. He looks back. That bully just jumps right over that gate and never stops the thing. That little kid gets around to the back of that house. He gets his hand on the back door, and that bully just grabs him by the shirt. About that time, the door opens up and his big brother just got home on leave from the Marine Corps. <laughs> that little kid said, Mr. Bully, you want to bully me now? You want to take what I got now? You want to make fun of me now? You want to throw me down on the ground now? My big brother's here. Take it up with him. And ladies and gentlemen, that's just how I feel about it. You want to make fun of me right now? Go ahead. You want to throw me down on the ground? Go ahead. You want to take everything I got? Go ahead. Wait till my big brother gets here. We'll settle it then, brother. And that's exactly how I look at it. You're going to be persecuted, but not forsaken. Then the fourth one. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now, I don't know any better place in the Bible to lay this out than Psalms chapter 37, verses 23 through 37. It says it all. Now, you want to ponder something? Ponder this. Ponder Psalms 8. Ponder this message, but ponder this. He says in verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord, keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a great bay tree. Yet he passes the way, and lo, he is not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Wow. Cast down, but not destroy. There'll be times in this life when you get cast down. The world will cast you down. Your friends will cast you down. People will leave you, but God will never leave you. People will try to destroy you, but God will never allow anybody to destroy you. Now, this is the child of God. Uh, now, as a child of God uh, who will suffer in this life, there is the victory. He says the end result is peace. You're going to have in the midst of all of this suffering, you're going to have the peace of God that passes all understanding. 
The reason you can have the victory is your suffering is for the Lord and not because of yourself. And in that, there's a great victory. He'll take care of you through it all because you work for him and he's your Lord and master. And he does it this way by design. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, when people work for me in ministry... When you do something for me, if you get in a counseling ministry and some of you already work for me dealing with people, uh, here's the bottom line. You only answer to me. You work for me in this New Testament local church ministry. You don't answer to the person sitting next to you. You don't answer to the person who doesn't like you. You don't answer the person who doesn't think maybe you who you think you are. End of the day, everybody can have their opinion. You work for me. You answer to me and me alone as the pastor of this church. Many times you'll be criticized by other Christians. If you made an honest mistake, then I will help you correct it and show you the way to fix it. But if it's just some guilt-ridden child of God, I mean, look at verse, uh, look at verse uh, uh, 32 there. The wicked watches the righteous and seeketh to slay him. There's a lot of times people don't like what you're doing because they're not doing anything. There's a lot of times people want to take cheap shots at you because they're not serving the God themselves and they don't like you serving it. You've got to take that into consideration. Bottom line is simply this. It doesn't matter. As long as you're doing what's right and you're holding the line and doing the word of God, you don't answer to them. You answer to me. I'll take care of it. I'll protect you. If there's a problem, I'll take responsibility for it. It's as simple as that. Matthew chapter 27. You all know the story of Christ being crucified. He's walking down the road carrying that big cross on him. He couldn't carry the weight of the cross. Now that cross is a picture of the burden of the ministry. And so what they got? They got Simon the Cyrenian. Threw him in there in the mix. Got him out of the crowd. Threw him down there. And that man helped Jesus carry the cross to Calvary to be crucified. I guarantee you. The Bible says they were spitting on Jesus. They were throwing rocks at him. They were throwing garbage at him. They were hitting him in the face. They were beating him. They were spitting on him. They were making fun of him. I guarantee you. Just because Simon was in the proximity of Jesus carrying that cross. He got the same treatment Jesus did. What do you expect? You help bury the cross, you're going to help pay the price. It's the way it works. Now, on a broader scale, I'll take care of you who work for me in this ministry. On a broader scale, making my point, cast down but not destroyed. We all work for the Lord if you're doing the ministry. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. There will be perplexity. There will be trouble on every side. But God will always have your back. God will always take care of you. You can always take, you can always rest in the fact that not one thing is going to happen to you that God doesn't want to happen to you. I'm telling you what, the greatest position you can ever be in life is when you are completely out of control and you have no say in it, you have no control over it, and whatever happens to you, whatever way it goes, has to come from God. Because then you know that you got exactly what God wanted you to have, and you can rest in that and be satisfied with that. One time David got into trouble, and uh, he, judged, he, he counted the people, which was against God, and God was very angry. And God came down and he said, okay, David, I'm going to whack you guys. You disobeyed me. And David said, I realize it. Whack on. And he said, well, I'm going to give you a choice. 
I'll, I'll either give you pestilence for three years, I'll have the enemies come down and take you over and beat the fire out of you, or I'll tell you what, I'll beat the fire out of you. Which would you rather have? David said, boy, there's something you don't have to pray about, Lord. You beat the fire out of me. You know why I said that? Because he knew if God had a hand in it, he wouldn't get one more day than God wanted to have and one less day less than God wanted to have. It'd be right what God wanted. And when you can get to that place in your life that you realize in your life what happens is what God wants to happen and he put it there for a reason and you can't worry about why and, and whining about this and that and realize it because of the child of God paying the price. This is what's going to happen and you let him deal with it. That's when you get something done. That's exactly when you get something done. Now he says in verse 10 and 11 and 12, in closing here, look at verse 10 and 11. Always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death of Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Let me break it down for you real simple. Let me give it to you in its most basic, profound form. He simply says, verse 10 11, the more you die to self, the more you live alive in Christ Jesus for God to use you. The more you get self out of the way, the more you die to this world, the more you pick your friends who are going to love the book, love God and love ministry instead of the slime balls you're hanging out with who care nothing about it, the more you transform yourself into the person of Christ and be what God wants you to be, the more you die to self and the things of this world and the selfish things of yourself and the selfish things of this world, the more you'll be alive in Christ and used of God. It's just that simple. I always tell people who struggle with things, and I have a lot of people that are young Christians and they have gotten themselves in circumstances that, that they want to get out of. When they really try hard and they really do what's right, and sometimes they get overwhelmed by circumstances that the price tag of the old life is, catches up with them sometime, you know. But I've watched them consistently do what's right. I always tell them this. I've told this to so many young men that got into the ministry, that, that first step of stepping out, leaving home, leaving your friends, going someplace where you don't know anybody. It's all brand new. It can be really scary. And I've told people that find themselves in those scenarios that they have the trouble. They're, they're perplexed. They have all those things. I always tell them this. I say, you know what? I watched you from the day God saved you. I watched you do what's right with the Word of God when the other two guys that came in with you didn't do what's right with the Word of God. You stayed, they left. You did everything the Bible says. Maybe you don't see it, but I've watched you grow to the place where here you are today. I've watched the hand of God in your life and everything you do. You know, many times I can see things in your life that you don't see. I can see God's hand work in your life when you can't, uh, when other people can't. And I always tell people who struggle, I say, you know what? I've watched you come to this point in your life. I've watched you go from this point through this, through this, through this, and now here you are. And here you are again with another circumstance in your life that you've got to make a decision on and do something with. And it's scary. Let me tell you how it makes it less scary. Look at this. You may be perplexed about where you're going or what you're doing or the decision you've got to make, but I'm telling you this. God did not bring you this far and bring you everything he brought you through to drop you now. You've got, sometimes that's all you've got to focus on. Sometimes that's all you can see. Sometimes that's all, you never lose sight of what God has done. When you don't know what to do, hold on to what you do know. 
and you know that God, I don't know where I'm going tomorrow. Lord, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know. Don't worry about it. Focus on the fact, rest in this. Take comfort in this. God has brought you where he's brought you. He's not going to let you fall now. Be patient. Wait. God's job is to reveal to you what he wants you to do. Get in the book. Find men and women who had the same scenario. You know what the average answer is? Oh, I'm too nervous to get in the book. That's exactly why you won't get anything. You got to go to that book. You want some counsel? Get into the 66 counsel of that book. Get everything that God's got for you. God didn't bring you this far, ladies and gentlemen, to drop you now. You just got another level of learning that you got to go to. And I think verse 12 is one of the greatest principles on ministry and suffering as what we do as God's people. Paul said in verse 12, so then death worketh in us, but life in you. That ought to be the verse you pondered this week. If you could ever grasp the impact of what he's saying, your life would never be the same again. And I, and I know some of you could care less about this, and some of you, you know, you're on to the ball game this afternoon or whatever you got going. You know what? Uh, or I'm just telling you, if you could, he's saying, I went through all that I went through, all the trouble, all the persecution, all the perplexity, all the beatings, all the strife, all the grief, all the hassle, everything I did. He says, Church of Corinth, I went through it for you. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Wow. Listen, every one of you, if you right now could see what he's saying and grasp it and make it work in your life, if you could get past the biggest obstacle that every one of us have in our lives today. And you know what that obstacle is? It's ourselves. If you could get past yourself, if I could get past myself, if you could see the struggle in your marriage, in your relationships, with your kids, the addictions you have that you've struggled with, the things that the world has brought you down to, your personal issues that we have, if you could just see what Paul's saying, he went through all he did that somebody else could get the comfort that they needed by getting the comfort through his suffering. The death in his life brought life to somebody else that you could help them through their suffering from the world by the lessons learned and applied from our own suffering in our life and our issues of life. Most of the advice that I give you and the problems you have in life, very honestly, very basically, most of the advice I give you is just based on what I went through in my own life and I failed in my life and God showed me and I learned the lessons and I can apply them onto you. That's simply what life is in the ministry. But no, some of you won't. Some of you never will. You'll continue to do it your way. Suffering the reproach of this world system, which will uh, use and abuse you, and you'll never see the great truth laid out before you today. All your life, you will not only be troubled, but you will be distressed. All of your life, you not only will be perplexed, but you will live in a life of despair. All of your life, you will be persecuted and you will also be forsaken by your friends and the world system and everything you're trusting in. All of your life, you will be cast down in time. You will be destroyed physically. And then in comes the stress. In comes the anxiety. In comes the depression. In comes the bad relationships. In comes the turning to addiction for your problem. In comes the Prozac to help you with your depression and your emotions. In comes the booze. In comes the drugs. All to escape the suffering, which in reality just adds to the suffering and compounds it even more. Listen, God will take you where you're at, and he'll take the stupid things that we have done, 
And if we're willing to stop our bad choices and bad thinking that have caused our sufferings for the world and let God root us in the Word of God, build us up in the Word of God, and then establish us in the Word of God, God will take all of those things and add the things that now He gives us and the things that we're going to... He'll change the suffering. He'll change the persecution. He'll take it from the world and put it in the aspect of ministry. And then God will do everything that He needs to do in your life and my life. And this is why today I told you starting out, this is not something you're going to grab and immediately go out of here and say, oh, I got it. This is something that you need to ponder. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. The things that we go through, if we can learn those lessons, become the life for others. Taking your tragedies, your problems, and your issues, and letting God have the victory and the glory in it, and then let God take it and bring it to somebody else. That's the ministry. That ministry is suffering, and it's simply based on those things that we experience, the difference between suffering for Christ and suffering for the world. Let's pray.